Hi, my name is Giovanni C. I play Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, the musical, now playing at Stages St. Louis. And you're listening to Cobra Kai Companion. Welcome back to another episode of Cobra Kai Companion, and I am Peter. And today, you guys, a very special interview. Uh, this is probably the closest we'll ever get to Pat Morita's Mr. Miyagi, but joining us, uh, playwright, actor, director, uh, Giovanni C. How are you doing, sir? Good, thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, so, so, so many things to talk about. Um, uh, I, I mentioned actor, not only are you a stage actor, uh, you, for about 20 years, you actually acted in uh, a lot of television shows and some some movies as well. That, yeah, that's right. Um, pretty, pretty well, right up. Uh, well, you see, I guess I guess my film and TV um, career kind of came to a bit of a stop because I became the artistic director of a, a regional theater in Vancouver. And, and that was so full time. I just I just stopped auditioning for film and TV around 2012. But um, I, I would love for that part to resume again, but it's been, um, I guess, uh, partly on hold because my theater career uh, is so busy as a freelancer and partly because of this pandemic. So, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to something that I, I read up on this. Uh, let's go back and learn a little bit more about you. Um, you are uh, Filipino Chinese. That's right. And, and born in Manila. How, how long were you there before you uh, moved to Toronto? Not at all. Like, uh, and actually, uh, my my first stop in Canada as as an infant, so I was, you know, still still a babe in arms, was Vancouver. Uh, so the first four years of my life were in Vancouver, and then, but Toronto is my hometown. I that I spent, you know, between the ages of like forty and forty four, we're all in Toronto. So, what was it like for you growing up? Were you always into performing arts? Oh gosh, no, not at all. Um, I don't have anyone else in um, my family with the real arts background. Like there are artistic people. Like my sister is a wonderful writer. Uh, my brother is a very fine musician. But none of us ever even contemplated uh, a life in the arts. And, and so, uh, like a lot of young people, like you know, everyone in my class was sort of on a math and science track, and I was always pretty good at those things. So I, I actually have an undergrad degree in engineering of all things and practiced, uh, you know, um, engineering. I was in the corporate world for four years after graduating. So I didn't get a, I got a late start to acting. Um, I, I had done community theater, mostly musicals. And that was my first love musicals. Uh, so I guess about four years in at the age of 24, I decided I want to be an actor full time. And that's kind of how it started 30 years ago. Um, this is my 30th anniversary year as an actor. So congrats on that. Yes. Um, now being from uh, Toronto, were you able to catch Disney's uh, turning red? Oh gosh. Yeah. What, what do you think? That, that, that just, that uh, lifts my heart. Cause I mean, Toronto is my hometown and Domi just, Obviously, her love of Toronto is like mine. 
it, it's so recognizable. It's so, uh, you know, it's so familiar. The, the, yeah, the household uh, that she grew up in, the, the Toronto that she loves. So that, that just uh, really spoke to my heart. Yeah. You, you mentioned, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the word that, that, that you used, but, uh, I know that you dabbled in some math and during the pandemic, you actually volunteered to, uh, tutor some, some kids as well. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I wanted to make myself useful. Um, and I know how overwhelmed so many of my friends were not just having to, you know, cope with working at home, but then also, um, having to homeschool essentially become their kids tutors. And I know, uh, a lot of my friends, uh, in the arts math wasn't their thing. And I, I guess I happened to have that aptitude. So I, I offered to do some tutoring, uh, for, for friends, kids. And, and that was really great. And I had to kind of brush off my own math knowledge. Cause, uh, you know, as an actor, you're not really asked to use the, the quadratic equation or the cosine law very much. So I just had to kind of do a little, it's good for me because I had to do a refresher and all that stuff. I had to, you know, solve a, a system of, uh, of equations, <laughs> that kind of thing. But it was, no, it was fun. And, and uh, I, I loved doing it. Yeah, my uh, nine-year-old, he did some distance learning as well as, as many uh, kids. So it sounds like you were kind of doing it when everybody else was learning as well. Um, what were your classrooms like and how difficult was it for you, if, it, if at all? Yeah, it was always one-on-one. -on -one and, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I learned a lot from, you know, how to, how to try to tutor online. It was, it was really great. It, was, it wasn't too, like, you know, thankfully, you know, uh, none of the kids were doing calculus or anything particularly hard. So, so it was a pretty easy brush up. I just kind of had to stay uh, one class ahead of all the kids. Now, you, you mentioned uh, it being your uh, 30th anniversary in, in acting. You also did some voice acting on uh, is it Mo Monster Force, uh, the cartoon. Oh, no. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Was it Monster Force? It was... Um... Oh my gosh! Wow, you've done a deep dive. Um, I don't think it was. Mo Might have been Monster Force. Is that the one I played? Um, oh boy, it's some Japanese speedster, uh, Ricky, somebody or other. Yeah, no, I d I've done an X Men episode. Uh, I did. Yeah, like it was a Stanley online. One of the very first kind of online animation things it was kind of in the early days before streaming was super popular but that was a recurring character and i did gosh i don't know how many episodes but yeah i i, I have to admit that was so long ago i don't even remember the name of the series except I, I love voice acting it's probably my favorite kind of acting to do because there's um uh, such tremendous freedom with voice acting so so how'd you get into that because um i, I saw that it was more early on that you did uh, the, the voice acting and then thereafter was uh, TV and film. Oh, they were, they were really pretty much at the same time. And it's the same kind, you know, it's through the same, you know, agencies would get a casting call for voiceover work as well. So they really go in hand in hand with the um, film and TV calls. I just, my agent would say, Hey, uh, they're part, there's a part, they're looking for a guest slot or a regular for this voice gig. Do you want to audition? So it's, it's the same deal as a, uh, Film and TV, and like film and TV, it kind of went on hold when I um, um, became an artistic director, and and then that's just such a demanding job. Um, freelancing was 
kind of out of the question. Uh, one of your other projects I'm uh, really interested about, you played the cameraman uh, by the name of Max on the uh, Universal Soldiers Part 3, I believe it was, which also had Burt Reynolds. That is right, yeah. Uh, Burt Reynolds and um, that guy from Evening Shade, Matt. Um, oh, boy, he was the he was the lead. And I'm sorry, Matt, he's a regular in Evening Shade. But I got to, I got to meet and work with Burt Reynolds um, late in his career. I, I don't remember if it was before or after he had done Boogie Nights and sort of had that renaissance because I think he got an Oscar nomination for Boogie Nights. It might have been just before. But uh, no, he, he, had, he had lots of great stories and was just, uh, you know, a, a real uh, presence uh, offset, just uh, so, so uh, charismatic. Yeah, I, um, that, that's actually available on YouTube in its entirety. Is you it? know <laughs> I never watch my old stuff and, and you're digging up some pretty old stuff. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm trying to, I was trying to find things, to, you know, whether it's stills or clips um, just to kind of see, you know, what it was like uh, for you, um, you know, younger. There was um, a TV show I, I found I couldn't find anything on, but um, it was a uh, gosh, what is it called? Side effects. It was oh, yeah. uh, that's kind of the most substantial role I ever played. Um, and, and, and it was, you know, and I guess for anyone who's kind of um, listening to your podcast, they should know like, I'm, I'm Canadian. This was a Canadian drama on our national broadcaster, uh, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, so it was a primetime drama. We only had two seasons. I think we did 29 episodes. And so that that was my, like, I, I would say of, of all my, you know, IMDb credits, that was by far uh, the meatiest role because it was a recurring lead role. I, I was in all 29 episodes and that's where uh, I got to, you know, play a character with a real arc that developed over time because all the other credits um, um, were more or less guest shots on other things, um, either Canadian or American stuff that that filmed in, in Toronto. Um, so that was probably my most substantial credit as well as um there's a thing called um the atwood stories that lynn stopkowicz directed that's probably the only other really like um role that i got to to just uh play a real character because you know when you're a guest uh, player we call them day players right on on an episodic thing you're usually there just to kind of um move the exposition along i played a lot of doctors because um, there's always a, a movie of the week, or as we call it, disease of the week. And you're there to, you know, um, there's an American hero. They come in Toronto and you're basically there to say, you know, to deliver the bad news of, of you've got this disease or that disease. And, and that was kind of the bulk of my most most of my credits are playing doctors delivering bad news to, you know either first tier or second tier or third tier American stars. So what about on Kung Fu, the legend returns? Oh yeah. That was, a, that was a fun one. That was really early on. I got to play a monk in a flashback scene. So my scenes were with David Carradine uh, and I was wearing the whole bald cap three hours in a makeup trailer to get that effect. And I was, uh, yeah, that, that was, a, I remember that one. I was fun. I remember his uh, grandkids were on set and they would sometimes be heard in the middle of a take. So we'd have to stop a take and he'd have to apologize for his grandkids running around. Yeah. Another credit that you had, um, 
Once a Thief. Now, was that directed by John Woo? No, it, it, the, like the series was called John Woo's Once, this, Once a Thief to kind of brand it as, a, you know, but obviously John Woo's an executive producer, had nothing to do with the series. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat, nothing to do with the series. It was really, uh, it was just parlaying off his name. Uh, and that was also a fun one. I remember that one pretty well because I think, I think that's the only one of my credits where uh, I got to... Um, uh, have a working uh, firearm. You know, there was a firearm uh, a specialist on on set who who did you know very very stringent uh, protocol whenever you're discharging or, or even even pointing a fake weapon. Like there's a whole series of very very precise protocols that are kind of necessary because we've seen what happens when you take shortcuts and you you know the horror story on that um, Alec Baldwin movie. You know, it's almost unthinkable because having having used um, a weapon on on camera, I know exactly how strict those protocols are and how much pride uh, firearms masters take in in making sure everyone stays safe. So, but I remember that that um, that gig because I got to fire, uh, I think, a nine millimeter Taurus, which is like a a Brazilian manufacturer. It's like a Glock. It's like a kind of Glock thing. So you yeah. you, you know, like you you fire um, a blank, uh, and then in the scenes where they don't actually need to see the uh, and this because this is before CGI, right? So they had the blank, uh, not before, but before CGI was affordable, I guess. Um, so they have the blank that I got to fire, and but in the scenes where you, you don't need to see the um, um, the discharge, they give you uh, a dummy replica because who wants to be holding something lethal when you don't need to? So that that's what I mean by these really strict protocols. So in a shot where you're not seeing the discharge, they give me a really great looking replica. Uh, but then the one time I got to fire it, I know there, there are guys who specialize in action and they get to fire guns all the times and it's old hat to them. But for me, it was kind of exciting because the only time in my life I've got to handle a weapon. Yeah, you, you shared the uh, the Alec Baldwin story, and then the mention of blanks immediately takes me back to Brandon Lee on The Crow. Oh, yeah, horrifying. Yeah, and then there's the John Eric Hexum incident on his thing. Uh, he, you know, he he also died uh, as as a result of just um, you know basically not following the safety protocols in place yeah. whenever, whenever there's a, a firearm on camera. So, my goodness, yeah, I mean. Um, I guess the, if there's a, you know, a, a bright side to it, you don't hear too many of those stories. Um, but, you know, the few that come out, you know, they're pretty horrific. Um, now, to kind of uh, segue into The Karate Kid, um, it, it's obviously a, a classic film. How familiar were you with the story? Oh, yeah, really. I mean, I saw I saw its original release because... I would have been more or less the same age as, you know, Daniel and Johnny Lawrence. I was 16 when it came out and it was a transformative, like honestly a transformative movie for me because um, I think maybe two, three weeks before seeing it, you know, the first run in in a movie theater, I'd seen uh, 16 candles, right? That's the same year, 84, right? And, And for us people our age, that was, Long Duck Dong was how we were represented on screen. That was the trope for Asians on screen. We were the butt of the joke, objects of ridicule, 
just these kind of grotesque caricatures. And it was, I remember seeing that then and not even knowing what I was feeling, you know, a combination of um, anger, rage. And, and, and the funny thing is I couldn't put a name to it because it was the norm. It was how we always saw ourselves. It wasn't until I saw that um, movie Dragon with Jason Lee. And do, do you remember the scene where he's on a date with Lauren Hawley and they're watching breakfast with Tiffany's and she's laughing at Mickey Rooney doing that um, obscene Japanese character on camera and she's laughing with the rest of the crowd and then she looks over at uh, Jason Scott Lee and she sees the look on his face and then she suddenly gets it. Uh, she gets the cost, uh, the, the toll it takes on someone watching themselves denigrated publicly like that. And that and that's when I got it was like, that's what I was feeling when I saw Long Duck Dong was it was just like that moment in that movie. And I couldn't put a name to it. But then, you know, three weeks later, I see um, the Karate Kid. And here is his character with humor and dignity and, and a real, a real character. And he wasn't this, you know, magic Asian character who just, you know, like he had his faults and his flaws. Like that drunk scene was so important because we saw that he's also someone who suffers and has pain. And uh, so what Pat Morita and Robert Mark came and created, I don't even, you know, I think I, I got to talk to Robert and he knows it now because he's heard the same thing from dozens of people, but what it meant to people of my generation, it was so important because we, we had Pat Morita and we had George Takei and, you know, Robert Ito was on Quincy as <laughs> Sam, but there were very few actors represent and you know and no asian women which is terrible but there are so few actors representing um asians in, in any kind of positive light at that time so pat morita was a hero to a whole generation of asian actors like of my generation because we didn't have anything else other than george takei to really latch on to for for um any kind of inspiration. So yeah, I remember it. Yeah, I, I, I remember it clearly. I, I wouldn't say I watched The Karate Kid like um, obsessively over the years. If it was on TV, I'd always watch it. Uh, and I know it well um, from, you know, just seeing it over the last 30 odd years, just kind of seeing it bits and pieces. But I, I don't think, I, I wouldn't call myself a, a binge watcher of it, but I know it well. Uh, and of course, when I got this gig, um, um, I had actually planned not to, to really refer to it that much, but um, turns out my wife had never seen the movie and I wanted to watch it with her. Um, so we uh, uh, we watched that. Oh, and of course, yeah, I would say I, I remember I watched number two and three. I think I watched the Hillary Swank one. I don't even remember. I mean, I probably did. Uh, I didn't see the... Um, a reboot with um, Jackie Chan and um, oh, Jaden Smith. Yeah, I, I don't. I didn't get to see that one. And but I have been watching. You know, even before I got this gig, I watched Cobra Kai, and I I love it. For um, I mean, it's made for people like me. The way 
um, Stranger Things is because there's the nostalgia factor, right? For, you know, for Stranger Things, again, you look at everything. It's like, oh, wow, that was my childhood playing D&D with nerds in a basement and uh, all that stuff. And, and, and the, the, the sly references to all the movies we watched in the 80s. Uh, the same thing with Cobra Kai, right? It's just... Uh, it's kind of great seeing um, Ali, like Elizabeth Shue, come back as Ali um, all these years later to see um, um, Chosen and um, to see um, Kumiko. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kumiko had Tamlin to meet. Uh, it's like, oh, this is so great. It's, it's, uh, yeah. So it, it, it I know it, it speaks to a lot of young people, but it hits um, a real sweet spot for the Gen Xers like me who loved it the first time around. Absolutely, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Part Two where they go back to Okinawa, you know, um, just to go back a little bit, like I have shared the exact same story, you know, for those that uh, tuned into my uh, interview with Robert Mark Heyman, I mentioned to him that I did a uh, Miyagi character analysis uh, last year, which is on our YouTube channel, where I took a, uh, a deep dive into his time in service uh, with the 442nd because so little of it was known. Yeah. And um, we uh, looked up all the ribbons and medals that he was awarded and uh, kind of had a discussion what someone would have gone through to have been awarded such medals. Um, but I have also, uh, on that very video, I've referenced Long Dok Dong and you know, the representation of Asians uh, uh, at, at the time. And I have, uh, I've had conversations with the exact same reference of uh, the, the last, uh, no, not last dragon, but dragon, the Bruce Lee story uh, directed by Rob Cohen, I believe it was, uh, who also did like Fast and Furious and, and things like that. But yeah, that very scene, it, 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 it resonates with, with me as well. Uh, and, yeah. and I remember, I don't remember what year it is that the early nineties that they did dragon. Or, or, I believe 93. It's so funny. When I watched that scene, it's like, I, I knew I had a name or not a name, but I had a, it's like it validated the feelings of watching 16 candles um, nine years before in 84. It's like, Oh, I wasn't alone in feeling that kind of anger slash shame slash, you know, whatever it just, it suddenly just kind of validated my experience of, of being in a cinema, watching, <laughs> watching someone who looks vaguely like you just be the butt of the joke. And to yeah, have no, absolutely. I, I, I feel, um, I don't know if she served as consultant, but uh, Bruce Lee's daughter, you know, because she she had a small part in the film as well. And as I understand it, they wanted Brandon Lee to play the role, which he turned down uh, to play his father. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I think that scene is very important. And, you know, uh, thank goodness for YouTube, because that clip exists. And, you know, we can share that and say, hey, people, this this is how it looks. Uh, this is how, how we feel, you know, like, like you said, you know, we couldn't put it into words. So, um, you know, I spoke with Keone and, and, and Mari, you know, we uh, mentioned that, you know, we've come a long way, but we, we still have some ways to go as well. Oh yeah. 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 Now um, can you talk about uh, when did you first hear about the project uh, for the musical? Yeah, I was, um, um, I'm, I'm still kind of based in Calgary right now because I'm, I'm um, after 30 years professionally, I decided I would like to get my master's, my MFA in uh, theater uh, since I didn't ever got my undergrad degree. That's not why, no, it's more because I'm interested in, um, in teaching, uh, being like a theater professor. And of course I need to be, um, to have a post uh, grad degree for that. So anyway, I'm there, I'm just started rehearsals for my um, thesis play, which is a play that I wrote 
my own uh, adaptation of The Way of the World set in a crazy rich Asian Singapore. Uh, I started that January 3rd, and then I got an email from my agent January 7th saying, hey, um, the casting agency uh, wanted to know if you wanted to put um, uh, an audition tape in. <clears throat> and my first thought was honestly, I am way too busy doing my thesis play and I have no chance they're going to cast an American. And, and uh, fortunately, my wife talked me off that ledge and said, just do it. But promise me one thing. If you submit a tape, don't just go through the motions and do something half-assed. Like really try to do a good audition if you submit it. But she, she basically said, just do it because you never know. Sounds like a great project. Like uh, I knew from the casting call that uh, Amon-san was directing and that Keone and Mario were involved, which just, you know, so I knew it was going to be amazing. I really thought, wow, this is going to be amazing with those, you know, the combination of those guys on board. And I'll be honest, I, I, I didn't uh, know uh, Drew's music at the time, but I went and listened to some of his stuff and I thought, okay, so I, I knew that this was going to be really good. Uh, so I put uh, a tape, I, I auditioned by video. That's the only audition I ever did was the video where I did a couple of scenes and, and the song balance, uh, uh, you know, a short excerpt from the song balance that's still in the show. And then I didn't hear uh, back until, um, oh yeah, two days before the opening of my thesis play, this uh, show, The Tao of the World. Uh, so that's February 9th. My agent says, hey, uh, the producers, uh, Kumiko, Yoshi, and um, Brendan Walsh would love to talk to you. So the day before my opening, when I'm crazy busy, I, I of course made the time to Zoom with the two of them in New York. And um, they just wanted to talk. I thought maybe it would be a callback or they'd ask me to do something, but they just wanted to get to know me. So we had a really great conversation. And towards the end, it was this weird thing where it sounded like I had been offered the role, but I wasn't entirely sure if I booked it. Like they were talking like, well, we're so happy you're available. We can't wait to, um, you know, get started. And I thought, does this mean I have the role? But I, I guess I was um, a... Uh, too intimidated to ask for sure. So does this mean you want me? And and B, I was still thinking about my opening the next day. So I just kind of left it. And then uh, on Valentine's Day, I was having lunch with uh, my wife, Liana. We were in Banff because my show had opened and closed. It was just a three-day run. So we're in Banff working on a play together, a different one. And I got the call at lunch that, yeah, they'd made me an offer. So that's when I found that's a chronology. I, I found out January 7th, uh, sent in a tape the next week and got the offer on Valentine's Day. And that was this year? This year, all this year. Yeah, it happened really fast. Yeah, because some of the people um, in the cast have been involved in multiple workshops. Like Alan has been involved for a long time. Uh, Kate Baldwin has been involved um, at various, many stages of development. Jake, I think, was in the um, September 2021 workshop as well. No, but all of this has happened since January of this year. So it's uh, it's been very fast and very surreal. Yeah, we'll definitely get more into that because you you mentioned you know the your your play that that you had. There, there's another play that you wrote, Nine Dragons. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? That sounds very yeah. interesting. 
Yeah, Nine Dragons is is a, a detective story that is set in 1924 Hong Kong, so old colonial British Hong Kong. Uh, and it's uh, kind of like a noir-ish play with um, a detective, Tommy Lam, who's trying to solve a series of murders in Kowloon. Uh, and, and at the same time, he's trying to, to, to find this serial killer. He's, he's fighting pretty terrible racism within the Hong Kong police force. So uh, it takes a kind of a standard genre and uh, gives it a bit of a, of a twist because it's centering uh, an Asian character fighting systemic racism as much as trying to solve a case and, and trying to figure out who he is. So that was a play that opened in... Um, 2017 in Calgary. I wasn't living in Calgary at the time, but uh, it, it was a, a three city tour. It went from Calgary to Winnipeg and then to Vancouver. Uh, did, did very, very well, won uh, a couple of awards. And uh, now I'm working on a prequel to that same, the same character, Tommy, but uh, a younger version of himself. So it's set in 1911, Hong Kong. Uh, so that's one of the three kind of big um, writing pro writing slash directing projects in development right now so i so i know nothing about this world and we have seen robert mark came and you know write screenplays and then wrote the book for the credit the musical could it work in reverse as well like you know you the, your your nine dragons could you turn that into a screenplay and ultimately a film if you wanted Oh, absolutely. Plays get optioned into movies all the time. I mean, like just you, it's an endless list. August Osage County started as a play. Steel Magnolias, Chicago, the movie, of course, started as a, a musical in 1975 before its revival. Um, so, so no, for sure. Uh, a lot of I mean, uh, Nine Dragons in particular would probably be a really good one in a different medium, either either a film or like, you know, a limited series on on a, on a Netflix or, a, you know, a network. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I, I guess I have an agent who's who's thinking uh, about these things. But um, the truth is, I love theater. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a theater. I'm a theater animal. I mean, it's not that I'm averse to 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 film and TV, but I just I really, really love theater and it's the medium. Uh, I get most excited about, so I tend to write for it exclusively. But if an opera, let me just put it this way: I'm not shopping around ideas for film and TV actively. I would certainly be happy to consider if somebody says, "Hey, I really like this. Have you considered adapting it?" I, I would definitely look at it. But I am so busy and satisfied with the theater projects that are occurring right now that I don't actively try to pursue that medium. I think there's a quote that you mentioned that you would die on stage. How did I say that? I thought something something idiotic I'd say, but I would happily die on stage. Yeah, in in, in a literal way, I've died on stage in a in a in a metaphorical way many times already. Sure. <laughs> I mean, so for the character of Miyagi for the musical, um, obviously the character is so iconic and and. You know, people hear, you know, the words or the name Pat Morita and Miyagi There is almost one of the same. And obviously they can hear his voice. They can see what he looks like. Um, what, was there any specifics uh, in the musicals version of Miyagi that they were looking for? No, they gave me carte blanche. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, I don't I didn't um, intentionally seek to emulate anything 
Pat Morita did, but I was really aware that you, you can't really separate that character from him. So I know on a subconscious level, I'm probably stealing from him. And, and I have experience doing this because two other roles I've played on stage are the King and the King and I, which you cannot separate from Yul Brynner much as you try. You're going to rip off some Yul Brynner here or there because he left an indelible mark on that role. And then the other one is the cowardly lion and the wizard of oz the musical version it's like i defy anybody to play the cowardly lion and not slip a burt lar in there because the person who creates it encodes the character with a little bit of themselves and i think that continues in perpetuity no matter how much you you know when, when you're playing a role that's so um inextricably linked to one interpretation the original interpretation you know same thing if you're i haven't played henry higgins but i think anybody who's going to play henry higgins in um, my fair lady not pygmalion but in my fair lady you're going to imbue a bit of rex harrison into it so i didn't actively seek to copy anything pat marita did but i will fully acknowledge that it's probably there anyway without me trying yeah especially because the book is written by robert mark Heyman, you know and he finds the uh, he's really good at obviously writing the voice of Miyagi. Um, so I, I know that they probably don't want like you know spoilers out there and stuff like that. Is uh, what what can you tease us or is there anything of your Miyagi that you might be able to give us? Uh, I think it's fair to say because it's appeared in print that that the story kind of centers. Um, it, it's almost as if it's. It's told not as if it is told from Miyagi's perspective. Like he is the um, narrative framing structure of. Uh, let me tell you what happened. So he he kind of bookends uh, the piece, and and again, I don't think it's. I think it's public knowledge that 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 there's um, that Amon San has incorporated uh, some wonderful. Uh, storytelling techniques that that are very Japanese in nature. Like there are these um, um, spirits that follow Miyagi around, and and they they are very much about the central, I think, premise of our version, our musical, which is is um, Miyagi not just um, striving to to teach Daniel karate, but to give him a sense of of balance of of, of his place in the universe because it's it's essentially a coming of age story and all coming of age stories are about um an adolescent trying to figure out who am i what am i where do i belong in the universe so i think the spirits are a way of of helping daniel answer those questions and the spirits are also very much like um the japanese convention of the kuroko who uh, you know these kind of they're invisible not invisible they're visible um people on stage who help move things around. And the idea is you just, after a while, you just don't think of them as being there. It's it's a great convention. It's very theatrical. It, it helps, it, it, it solves a lot of really great questions of how do you do this when you're not filming it? The things that people expect, like, you know, um, I don't think it's giving anything away. We, we, you know, we retain the chase scene where, um, the Cobra, Johnny and the Cobras and the skeleton costumes are after Daniel. Like, but that that was stuntmen and and it had camera angles that you could edit and cut. So how do you do a big um, action sequence on stage and not make it look um, disappointing? 
And I think the solution is you, you don't try to copy it. You try to do a theatricalization. You try to do a, a more imaginative uh, version of it that doesn't rely on um, the literal, but relies on on something that's um, much more theatrical. And that's what excites me is Amon's vision, Amon's vision, the way Keone and Mari are so great at um, taking uh, something as physical as combat and creating something that is, it's not combat and it's not dance, but it's sort of the marriage of the two and, and it's exciting to watch. Now, uh, you obviously just mentioned Keone and Mari. How does uh, Mr. Miyagi move? Do you have some uh, dance numbers yourself? Uh, I, yeah, I don't want to give that away. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a thrill to work. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm doing the same stuff that these 20-year-olds are doing. Like the, Our dance ensemble is extraordinary. They are so, you know, anybody who hasn't seen a Keone and Mari thing, go on their YouTube channel, and that is a hours long rabbit hole because their work is so uh next level amazing and and uh i'm not doing that because i'm an old guy but i get to i get to do some stuff but it's it you know it it works really well is what i will say okay uh and as we get ready to wrap up just a few more questions um the um the kyoko scene the you know you, you mentioned uh mr miyagi's um you know, famous drunk Miyagi to show, you know, that he is human and, and how broken he was as well. Um, how, how did you kind of prepare yourself? You know, maybe if you could speak on your headspace uh, for, for doing your guys' version of that scene. Yeah. It's a very sensitive scene for sure. And, and I, I think as an actor, we rely on our own experience and what we can bring uh, to, to, you know, it's, it's the same process. You're thinking, what is it that I want? What is it that is uh, uh, an impediment to what I want? The, you know, intention obstacle. And then that substitution portion of what do I bring from my own experience that allows me to, that, that, is, that is as close uh, an analog to what the character is going through. I have not lost anybody you know i the way you know i, I haven't um suffered the same degree of loss but i know what it's like to feel betrayed by one's country you know this essentially kyoko dies because she doesn't get the attention she needs because she is in an internment camp in the first place and because um, of the refusal to to treat her um to treat her because she is one of those people in a camp, not a really full American. And, and this is all happening while Miyagi is literally um, risking his own life for his country. So again, I, I, we talked about this. I think I have a sense of what it's like to want to feel like you belong to a country that maybe doesn't love you as much as you love it. That is something I am fully aware of. I think every, uh, Asian actor, Asian person is fully aware of, of not feeling fully vested, not feeling fully accepted, living in the in-between. So I think I bring those experiences, that kind of uh, sense of pain and need and longing when I approach that scene. And it's, 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 a, it's a gift of a scene to play because it is so, it's so raw and uh, painful there's a real kind of, and, it, and it's one where you can sense that this is not 
typical like Miyagi um, swallows that pain. He keeps it bottled down, and this is a chance for him to let it explode in all its uh, uh, anger and potency. And so, yeah, I love the fact that you're seeing a person under exceptional circumstances finally erupt in a way he's always wanted to erupt but hasn't been able to. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds beautiful. I just, I, I can't wait to see it. I keep hearing great things about it, but uh, unfortunately, I'm a little, a little far in the plane tickets. Oh my gosh, dude. Oof, it's, it's a little, oh, no. little anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, if we go to New York, yeah, you get a chance to see it because, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great scene. You, everyone's seen how amazing Pat Morita is in that scene. Uh, it's, it's probably the scene that got him his Oscar nomination, very well deserved nomination. It's, it's a, it's a brilliant scene. Uh, Pat Morita played it uh, to the hilt, and I hope I can, you know, even approach a bit of that level of genius because it is is a gift of a scene to play. Robert, uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece. So yeah, it it really is. The um, well, what a lot of people, um, I, I think, what they also like about the original Karate Kid movie is the uh, the, the character dynamics between Mr. Miyagi and Daniel San. Can you talk about your working relationship uh, on and off stage with uh, John Cardoza? Oh, I love John. He is amazing. Uh, he carries the, like, you know, the rest of us, the principals, we have two or three. John is singing and I, I don't, I didn't count, but it's gotta be like at least eight, if not maybe 10 numbers. So it's and and he's got all the, all the physicality of the role on top of that it is, it is a demanding, demanding role. And John just excels in it. He's a joy to play with. He's such a generous and um, present scene partner. He's always there and he's always listening. You always feel that, that I always feel like I can play and, and bounce back things, try new things and, and be very much in the moment with John and, and off stage. He's just, he's just a lovely, lovely human being. Um, so uh, one of the real uh, pleasures of being involved in, in um, Karate Kid the Musicals working with John Working with this whole company, uh, it um, we love each other a lot. There's a lot of really uh, beautiful human beings involved in this production, and and um, yeah, I, I feel very blessed to be able to to go in every day and just play around with these these insanely talented and very uh, very lovely humans. Yeah, everyone seems to be like family you know, from, from what we're seeing on social media. Uh, and I'll end it with this. Um, what uh, advice can you give to people who uh, want to do what you're doing, you know, whether it's to um, write plays or work in theater, um, you know, things like this? Uh, I think the advice I would give is just always, always focus on the work because what we do is um, in the public arena, there's uh there's going to be a lot of people who want to tell you you're terrible or tell you that the greatest or whatever. And, and I think if you focus on the work and you don't get, let the highs get you too high and the lows get you too low and you, and you tune out the noise because people either trying to blow you up or tell you or tear you down, that's, that's noise. And it's really about the art form, whether you're an actor or a writer or a director it's it's about the craft and uh 
learning the craft and excelling and, and learning to be your own harshest uh, judge. Uh, and if you can please yourself, the faster you get to the point where you, you just really aren't trying to please anyone else but yourself, those when you get to that point, that's when you really start to blossom as an artist. And that is a very hard place to get to. I don't think I got to that place for 15 or 20 years. Um, some people get to it right away. Um, it took me a long time, but strive to, to get to that point where it's just about you and your relationship to your craft. And that's the best advice I think I can give. Fantastic. And is there anywhere people can follow you if they want to follow your journey? Oh, uh, no, I'm terrible. At, <laughs> you, you probably found out trying to research me. I have a Twitter handle. I am a very reluctant uh, Twitter user. I find my life is um, much happier the more I stay off social media. <laughs> it's probably best for a lot of people, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. All right. For me, you guys can find me on Twitter at Cobra Kai Pod or on Instagram at Cobra Kai Companion. Companion spelled with a K. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you guys next time. Haven't you done enough, princess?